Hello and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast, one of several podcasts on the internet where we talk about cars and movies and TV and online and YouTube and all of that good stuff. As ever, I'm Chris Ratcliffe with Martin Spain. Later, we're going to be talking about, well, some of the highs and the lows of Mission Impossible. But first, let's go straight to the news. This first thing, this had caught me out. I don't know when it was a when it was general knowledge, but following Goodwood, there was a comment that Keanu Reeves is in the process of producing a Braun GP documentary. Had you heard about this at all, or is it just me? No, this this caught me completely unawares until I think someone tweeted or posted on Instagram about it. I have wondered why no one has done anything with the 2009 quote-unquote fairy tale of Braun GP rising from the ashes of Honda's questionable Earth Dreams Formula One project Mm. and taking a 100% hit rate for a Formula (laughs) One constructor, entered one season, won both titles, left Formula One, so to speak, um, if, if you count leaving as being bought up by Mercedes. I've wondered whether or not this would have been the subject to make a Formula One movie about, is take this season... And your, you know, your first act is the end of a cruddy season and the car manufacturer walking away. Your second act is the start of Braun GP. And the third act is that tense, nail-biting finale where are they actually going to be able to do it on a budget of, what is it, 5p and a curly-whirly? I'm surprised that this hasn't been done into a movie, but it looks like Keanu Reeves is going to take it forward as a documentary. Now, he's a noted petrol head, loves his cars, loves his motorcycles. He's a regular at the Festival of Speed. And apparently this is going to be a four-part docuseries for focusing on current Formula One managing director, but at the time, team boss of Braun GP, Ross Braun, who bought out Honda in 2009 to save the team and save, more importantly, all the people who worked there, named the team after himself after they couldn't think of anything else, (laughs) turned up at testing with a white car and promptly thrashed everyone to the tune of a second a lap. The Braun GP season is still one of my favourite Formula One seasons to go back and watch the highlights on because it was... It was so interesting to watch. I, was, I think it might have been the last the last year of refueling. It's so strange to think of cars being raced at in, in sort of short stints and therefore being really lightweight. I love watching, uh, you know, Jensen Button win races is, is always a joy because I love the way he drives. I love his whole attitude. He was my, my racing driver um, when I was growing up, watching Formula One in sort of my, my early 20s, watching him drive for Williams and then Crowley Renault years and then going to Honda and having some success winning his first race and so on and so on. And so I thoroughly enjoyed that season. I'm really really glad that somebody is going to give it the attention I think it deserves because we've all kind of forgotten about it a little bit mm. now. So yes, he's going to try and tell the story of Braun GP. I, it's quite of fun that this is coming out and there'll be a generation of people who know Jensen Button maybe as the sometime pundit on Sky Sports F1 and have kind of never known him to be a, you know, a, a hungry racing driver looking for more than just that one win. And so maybe it's going to find a whole new audience for him. But I look forward to it. I, I you know, Keanu Reeves has actually got some pretty good taste when it comes to these kinds of things. Um, he produced a film, maybe he might even have directed a film, while he was sort of in that post- Matrix pre-John Wick Keanu Reeves wilderness years really Um, he directed a film out in Japan about martial arts I think kind of given to him by his stunt people that he worked with on the Matrix interesting and 
by all accounts, it's really good. And I feel like he has the the, the nous and the taste to make this not shit. So <laughs> I await with interest to see how this is going to be. Uh, what else have we got? The uh, Formula One US rights that we mentioned on last week's... Last week's... Last, last episode. episode. <laughs> it, was, it was a few weeks ago. We're still working on getting these regular. This is, a, this, is, um, this is a work in progress. But the Formula One US rights have now been sold. Well. And unfortunately for Netflix, they did not win. <laughs> So there was some interesting details that have come out around this. So there's an article that we'll link to from Crash.net, which says, as we stand, he says, checking the date on the thing, it may, uh, this may be a little bit out of date now, but essentially the rights, I think as we said in the last episode, has gone up, the cost of the rights rather, has gone up from five million a season to somewhere between seventy-five and nine hundred million dollars a season to ESPN. What? Somewhere between seventy-five and nine hundred million. There's a lot of ground between those sorry, figures. Sorry, do you mean ninety? That, that, that's entirely my fault. Not. To... <laughs> I was going to say nine hundred million. That, that that's bold. Even somewhere for... between one dollar and a billion dollars a year. Somewhere in that range is the uh, TV rights. Um, I know I know America's pretty keen on Formula One, but I'm not sure the broadcasters are keen to lay out that kind of cash. But anyway, the, the carry on. The interesting thing with this is that you've got Amazon apparently offering the largest amount, with them intending to then sublicense it to a regular TV network. Comcast apparently bid, but were would do it via some of their networks in the in the US. Netflix made an offer, and it's not said what size the offer was, but F1 didn't want to put their products solely on a streaming network. Now, one of the... Very, 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 very wise. wise. One of the... In- also, I suspect Netflix doesn't have the budget for this anymore, given the the recent downturn in their stock mm. price and their pulling back on owning all the content and putting out just a constant fire hose of mediocre to, to rubbish <laughs> rom-coms and the odd the odd gem here and there i would have been surprised had they won this because it feels like they'd have to spend a lot of money and they really can't afford to be spending a lot of money Mm. right now one thing amazon i'm surprised they didn't go harder at it because they have more or less infinite money but then amazon if they had got it so their intention was to sub-license it which means you've either got to have somebody willing to pay as much as you have ish or you kind of do what sky and channel 4 do so amazon may be showing it live and then speed or speed still network or you know nbc or one of the american networks showing a a highlight yeah, package something like that um that would suck i mean to be fair i think the right um organization won out here rather than it going to a streaming network they're just going to use it to to bring in more viewers which is fine but formula 1 on a streamer just doesn't seem right exclusively on mm. a streamer at least which also then puts them into an interesting position with their F1 TV Pro service which kind of has been lost in a lot of this because I remember when Liberty came in there was a lot of talk about them being a media company and they will put all the all the product together and they will do all of that to make it good 
um, and they don't need the regular TV networks. But now, now that the TV networks have come, we're going, look, here is all of our money. They've gone, thank you. So... I think it's interesting. Um, my friend Andy, uh, who is a huge Formula One fan and has moved to the US of late, has said, look, he uses the F1 TV app all the time. Mm. That's how he watches races. And they get the world feed, they get the Crofty and Brundle commentary team he's so used to. I wonder whether or not Liberty are aware that F1 TV Pro is for your hardcore fans mm. and... They're just they're going to pay whatever you want to have access to the live timing, the best commentary teams, and so on and so on. And the kind of drive to survive slightly more casual fans who are used to experiencing sport on the TV are just going to go to the TV network that's got yeah. it. So maybe that's their plan. I'm not sure. I do know a lot of the more hardcore fans of F1 who watch in the US exclusively watch over the F1 TV Pro app. So it's not dead and rubbish and not doing the thing. But you're right, Liberty have effectively outsourced this in the US by the looks mm, of things. Which would be interesting. Speaking of which, before we get on to what we've been watching recently, over the last three weeks, I've watched a lot of F1 because we've had the, the triple header of the Canada, Silverstone and Austria. How much of the TV coverage do you actually watch? <laughs> that's a good point as a person who has a family who are not keen on watching absolutely everything in the formula <laughs> one broadcast on a sunday generally i will turn it on at five minutes to the hour to start the race i very very rarely now watch the whole build-up there's just no time i can't have the television on for an hour and a half before the race starts and then two hours of the race and then half an hour afterwards that's just taking the piss and you know, I've got other things to do, better things to do, family things to do. So quite often, it literally goes on at five minutes to. Mm. I do watch uh, Friday practice sessions yep. and Saturday qualifying, and occasionally I will watch like this, the lead up to qualifying, let's say. But I really don't watch all the all the extra stuff, and I'd love to know who in Sky's viewing figures is watching that stuff. Are there people that will watch all that stuff? I used to be that person, but I'm not that person anymore. See, I I record all of it because I have it on Serious Link. And what I tend to do, because I'm in the same boat as you, is when they do the, the five-minute intro and the grid rundown and the nice swirly helicopter shots, that's usually when I start watching. But then what I'll tend to do is then go back after the race and basically fast-forward through that opening... Uh, let's say It is like an hour and a half of build-up. And... What struck me, because I was doing this after the Austrian Grand Prix, and particularly after Silverstone as well, because they have all the drivers doing their silly media stuff, is remember when uh, the BBC used to do F1? And they had a similar, maybe like an hour build-up, but it seemed to have a lot of extra features that they'd done with the drivers and with the teams and within the area and what have you, whereas Sky seemed to be chatter, 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 adverts, chatter, chatter, one featurette, which one of which was George Russell doing one corner at Silverstone in like an ice cream truck and uh, ice cream van and a bus, and it was just silly and rubbish. Chatter, chatter, chatter. Then you once you get into the like the, the pit lanes open and Ted Kravitz is standing at the end, and you know there's some drama and there's you know these people are still working on the car and these people are having problems. There's a lot of filler in Sky's product, which. I don't think the F1 actual production, so, you know, Will Buxton and Lawrence Barreto and Roseanne uh, Tennant, Roseanne Tennant, um, 
or, you know, the, the stuff that those people do just doesn't seem to have that level of filler. So I think F1 are actually making better content around the Grand Prix than Sky are. And actually, with one exception, Ted's Notebook, which I think is a great roundup. I'll, I'll give you two, actually. I, I completely agree with you. I think that the the stuff that comes out are from F1 post-race with Jolian Palmer's race analysis, that yep. is almost uniformly excellent. You have to have an F1 TV subscription for two ninety nine a month, but the full thing is excellent. You get little um, highlights of it on the YouTube channel for free, but you don't get the full thing. Um, I think that's fantastic. I think a lot of what F1 do around the race is more interesting than Sky. And I don't know if it's just because maybe they have different production team with different ideas and Sky's production team's kind of just using the same old stuff. But I do enjoy the Skypad. Yes. I think the the Skypad with either Karun or especially with Anthony Davidson, I think is still a... I don't know if it's unique to the Sky broadcast. I don't know if other broadcasters in other countries do something similar. The Skypad is basically their version of Jolie and Palmer's race analysis, but it's it's in the heat of the moment, more or less. It's just after the session is finished, you get to see side-by-side quali laps. And quite often, you can get the driver who's just set pole to come mm. and you know talk about through, talk them through their lap. That is brilliant. That's fantastic. And yes, Ted's, Ted's Notebook is a delight. I love Ted's Notebook. Um, the testing notebook, the, the quali notebook, any of them, they're always just a wonderful kind of stream of consciousness <laughs> of interesting information. And sort of, it, it, more than anything else, it feels like you're there. Yes. I think yeah. it's... it's it, it really does feel like you're there, and I, I thoroughly enjoy that. In terms of their features, they and quite a lot of the team have been doing this for so long that maybe they've just run out of ideas. You know, <laughs> and, you know, how many more Formula One cars can Martin Brundle drive? All of them. I'd, well, all of them. I think he's on number sixty now. Sixty so, yeah. individual Formula One cars, which is pretty incredible. I have watched all of the F1, although I watched the British Grand Prix on 30 times fast forward, which is really weird because apparently that race was really good. But what I did was come to it late. I forget what I was doing, but I, I wasn't able to watch the race live. So I just did what I normally do, which is watch it on or from my recording, like you, I record them. But I just hit it on 30 times and just watched the uh, the position thing on the left. <laughs> and when it didn't shift, I didn't. But as soon as it shifted, I would stop it. You know, if it was someone I was interested in, like seeing if Lando Norris passes somebody or if Lewis passed somebody, I would watch that. But if you're watching it at 30 times that 10 lap kind of melee at the end caused by the the safety car yeah kind of just was it all happened so fast i didn't see it so i just kind of fast forwarded to the end and went oh okay so signs he won great good job and i can't i, mu- I must admit i kind of missed out on all the, the hype around the british grand prix and yes you know i watched the austrian grand prix in disgust at how no one will actually put names to the teams whose fans and the drivers whose fans are causing all of the issue about being homophobic and racist and sexist and generally just misogynistic apes because every single broadcaster dances around the fact that it's Red Bull and Max Verstappen who have brought this to Formula One and I'm I'll go further and say they started it Silverstone last year it all came in with them saying that Lewis deliberately drove into the side of Max Verstappen and then went and jumped up and down on his head while he was in the barrier. He could have been killed <laughs> if you would listen to Christian Horner. But anyway, I won't rant on about that, but it did bug me that no broadcaster has the stones to actually say who it is and whose fan base is causing this particular problem because everyone knows who it is. They're all just too scared of rocking the boat. 
Anyway, let's move on. So we've watched a lot of F1. Um, there's a couple of other news things you've got. Yeah. Um, so let- You're going to have to talk me through some of these. Hammond and May revive what next? So, what is that? Right. So I have been... I fell down a bit of a rabbit hole earlier and yesterday trying to unpick what's happening with Drive Tribe. Now, partly this is because there is a... YouTube channel, and if you go back to the start of lockdown, there was Drive Tribe chugging along doing its thing. There was, um, what was it called? Is it, um, was it called something like James May's Unemployment Tube or something? Yes, where James May took over YouTube and became a star at just doing stuff like, I don't know, like eating pies and stuff. <laughs> Just pottering Which I, I love because it was it was pure James May and he's kind of translated that into doing a bunch of TV shows along that line. Amazon's Our Man in Japan and soon to be Our Man in Italy. As of today. Uh, both James May shows that feel very much of a piece with his James May's unemployment tube, as did his cooking show, Oh Cook, which, <laughs> which remains one of my favourite ever cooking shows. I'm not normally a cooking show kind of person, but that one was wonderful where the cooking advisor to the show was kept in a cupboard and brought out <laughs> to tell James how to cook. And it did seem like she was genuinely just stood in the cupboard while they filmed the whole thing. Because um, did you ever watch um, Food Tribe? Nope. Nope, I didn't. I as soon as they sacked Jethro and Henry out of solidarity, I ceased all engagement with Dor- Drive Tribe <laughs> and any of its other tribe-associated things. I, I get what they were trying to do. They had a platform. They yep. were going to white label it and do food tribe and clothing tribe and makeup tribe and all that kind of stuff. But I think they they radically misjudged the the business model for that. But yes, I, I didn't really engage with any of the platform as soon as they sacked the editorial talent and just made it all about clickbait cack. Things that have happened recently. So they've finished filming the next Grand Tour special, which is them going from top of Poland in Gdansk down to at least Slovenia through like Hungary and Czechoslovakia and all those sorts of places. My job is yeah, awful. I've, I've been seeing I've been seeing the posts from from Clarkson on on mm. Instagram with that. So there is another special coming, which I look forward to because I have rewatched a few of their their previous ones and still really enjoyed most of them. Every now and then I will go and rewatch a chunk of one of the full series of the Grand Tour and it's still they each series had its flaws but they mm. remain hugely entertaining and watchable in a way that I don't think anyone's really recaptured certainly not the new series of Top Gear which we'll get to but yes I I I miss it being a full featured thing that has car reviews as well as adventures yes yeah agreed so that is looking like it's going to be about six months in the edit. So sometime around Christmas, January, we're going to get a new Grand Tour special. There has been a second series of uh, Richard Hammond's workshop that's been commissioned, which, again, was apparently some time ago, but I missed it. There also has been Drive Tribe has officially kind of shut down, and I don't know if they've already pulled the plug, but I know the servers were all being switched off and contributors were being told to pull There was content. a redirect. I, I, I Googled something the other day and there was a right Drive Tribe link and I wondered if it would still be archived. Yeah. And no, it was just a redirect, which is rubbish because it doesn't cost a lot to just have something crawl all of your pages and then render out a static version and shove it on an S3 bucket somewhere and just have that served up mm. for pennies a month. 
it's a shame to lose all of that that content. But then on the other hand, how good was all that content? Was it not just all top 10 clickbaity lists after <laughs> they sacked the editorial talent? True. I think it was. So I know a lot of young writers probably cut their teeth coming up through Drive Tribe, and that's wonderful. But I, I felt like they were... The moment that somebody new came in and had a radically different idea for how the editorial would be controlled and the decisions that would be made in the direction they would go, I think the whole thing just instantly nosedived. Yeah. And even with the best efforts of Clarkson, Hammond and May sort of popping along every now and then to go, hey, there's this thing called Drive Tribe, don't you remember? Please come and see our site. Uh, it was always destined to fail, unfortunately. I don't think they had a, a, a coherent business model or a sustainable one, frankly. Mm. However, the phoenix from Drive Tribe has really been their YouTube channel which has been going great guns. And uh, Mike Fernie, who has sort of become the de facto presenter of it, has really, I, I think, pushed the channel forward. And they're doing a big run at the moment with an M5 E61 touring. We're not going to have that argument again. Um, it is, yeah. No, I've, it's, it's the dark blue one. And the it dark is, blue one. It is mega. A bit of a and I've really, I have... Yeah, I have really enjoyed seeing them basically do what possibly they should have done in the first place, which is stick to that kind of content. If they weren't going to do editorial uh, yeah. words and and you know especially commissioned videos that that cost a lot of money and time and so on and and look wonderful. I mean, one of the things I will always love Drive Tribe for is Henry Catchpole's one last pass video where he takes uh, an Audi R8 V10 plus, I think, the spider version through a whole bunch of Austrian passes. It's beautifully filmed, the sound is incredible, and it's it's just such a wonderful thing that reminds you of what you love about driving you know long distance road trips to places that you want to drive it's a brilliant film and it is the, exactly the kind of thing i thought fantastic you know there's he's going to get to make these kinds of things and fortunately he's been able to continue doing that stuff with with um carfection but drive tribe did produce a, a couple of really great films that sort of allowed the initial the catchpole on carfection thing his kind of brand to basically percolate and, mm. and begin to emerge and i know jethro did a couple of really good films for them as well uh, whose names i cannot remember but i'll dig them out and and we'll mention them in the the show notes the youtube channel seems like the right the right place for drive tribe to live on even if the name then doesn't really make any sense because there's no tribe other than i guess youtube commenters this is kind of what caught my attention sort of sparked a lot of my my curiosity around this because drive tribe as a company is in liquidation legally, as we speak, is in, in, in liquidation. Mike is, according to his LinkedIn page, he, he is a, an employee of Drive Tribe. And the Drive Tribe YouTube channel, as we speak, I think it's, it's over a million subscribers, if not more. And they're doing this thing where they're bringing in famous YouTubers into the, the smallest cog. So they had Jimmy Broadbent take, Jimmy Broadbent take his Supra down to the smallest cog. And they kind of do these collaborations. So Jimmy's produced a video for his channel. Drive Tribe's got a video on their side. And, and Richard Hammond's there interviewing the YouTuber and all this sort of thing. So they've, they've kind of got the momentum there. But Mike made a comment in one of the videos about Richard Hammond having bought the M5. And him it being a sort of a company. It's a project car. I mean, they, they've bought it for the purpose of doing all these videos. And no doubt they'll get a load of stuff done and they'll flog it at the end and you know, the car will probably cost them nothing. They could probably do nothing to it, so the car would go up in value. 
But it just made me wonder who is actually going to own the Drive Tribe YouTube channel if the company that kind of owns it and gives it a budget at the moment is in liquidation. The other interesting one, so what next, is a rebranding of the Food Food Tribe channel. God, I can't talk today. Um, It's the heat. And what they've done is they've taken the the Food Tribe channel, reskinned it, Literally, the first video that they've kind of gone, here's our new channel, is them like with the food tribe set in a skip. Um, which is quite <laughs> That's very top gear, isn't clever. it? And it's um, Richard and James in, I think, Richard's kitchen, trying out James's gin and just having that back and forth, which they do so well and, and is, is very fun. But they said basically what they want to do is rather than have it as a thing so as a food or a car channel or whatever it's it's just them going what next what are we gonna do next what do we want to talk about next what do you want to look at next what do you want to examine next so it'll be interesting to see how much time and money especially they can put into a channel that isn't really focused which is generally not something that youtube favors youtube tends to like this person or this thing or particularly this niche, this genre, that's what we want. So it, it all seems incredibly fluid. And I wonder how much Drive Tribe was or is still supported out of somebody's pocket directly. And whether whether it's just reached a point where it can even, even you know, wash its face at the moment. Because if it's doing 2 million subscribers, that's a fair AdSense revenue going on there. So, yeah, I wouldn't see. be surprised to find out that um, that Mike is effectively going to be freelance, being paid by whoever it is that has gobbled up the rights to the Drive Tribe channel, and maybe mm. it is Hammond and May just supporting it out of their their pocket to do to do right by the people who maybe got screwed over by yep. by Drive Tribe. I don't know. It's 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 an interesting kind of behind the scenesy thing, but I I think it is worth giving the Drive Tribe channel a look if you haven't before yep. because there are there's some good stuff on it. And like you say, if you are like us and remember the madness of people cramming V10 engines into otherwise pretty unassuming five series, <laughs> then go and watch all the videos on that because it'll make you hit the classifieds really quickly. <laughs> anyway, uh, other than the F1, uh, what else have you been watching? Car Trek. And it said Car Faction then. I always watch Car Faction. Um, Car Trek Series 7. Them importing three terrible cars and hilarity ensues. One of which, given that we are British or English, and uh, was a TVR of some note from the Max Power days, along with an E30 BMW and a Mazda RX-7 covered in weird anime. And yes, that's true. The uh, by the way, the BMW was not meant to be BMW. It was meant to be an Alpine um, that Tyler oh. Hoover had. He did a video on it after yes. the, that series of contracts to say he'd actually meant to import the original Alpine. I want to say A110, but I might it's, be wrong. No, no. Is it? Is it? it it's the, it's a you know whatever number it is. Sorry, the, Pookie, the, I've I've completely fucked up the Alpineness of it all. It was the but one the that original, like, like the, the yeah the squarey yeah. one that looks like a door wedge. Um, <laughs> he he he'd meant to get one of those, which would have been a fantastically weird and and cool import car to have, but it couldn't get into into the country in time for filming, so he was forced to use basically what looked like a Bogo three series that somebody had jammed a five series engine into Ooh. very 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 badly um 
But yes, I, I was. They're trying something different with this series of Car Trek in that they're filmed series seven and series eight back to back. Uh, presumably because finding time in everyone's schedule is increasingly hard, and so you can maybe film twice as much material. Um, so I think there are only three episodes in this series yep. rather than five. Yeah, um, but still hilarity ensued because Ed inevitably had imported something absolutely dreadful with lots of reasons, but it did make you think, why would you get a TVR? I mean, there's history there and so on. Uh, it was a dog, like the worst TVR I think it's possible to own, something that was um, body kitted and flip painted mm. in the 90s and appeared on the cover of Max Power, but has since led a very woeful life and <laughs> appears to have lost all all of the horses from underneath the very large, very swoopy bonnet. Yes, it was entertaining to watch and it did make me go, oh, I remember when TVR made interesting cars to look at yeah. and, you know, go and look at classifieds and look at T350Cs and so on and think, oh, wouldn't it be great to have one of those for the week I would want to drive it? Um, <laughs> and then quickly I always it wanted to have down. one. I, well, this is the thing. My, my aforementioned friend Andy and I always said we'd, we'd kind of go between us and buy a TVR for a bit just to get it out of our systems, just to have one. And then the moment we couldn't remember which button or knob you were supposed to twist to get yourself out of the car, <laughs> then we'd sell it. Uh, but yes, that, that never actually happened. But I, I've always fancied having one for a bit and then yeah. going, right, I'm done now. It's fallen to bits or it's broken down or I'm just so annoyed at the fact that I can't remember which button to push or which thing to jiggle to get me out of the thing. <laughs> but yes, I, I did enjoy this this series of car trick. It was just over a bit too soon and I think it did show that perhaps they weren't able to get all the cars they really wanted but that said the challenges they did were very entertaining sort of paintballing shooting from um, from the cars whilst pretending to be uh, particular movie stars. So watching uh, Freddy Tavares Hernandez pretend to be Vin Diesel, uh, <laughs> just throwing out quotes from the first Fast and Furious movie, which is still the only one that's really quotable. It was just a treat. And so, yes, if, if you haven't watched this amazing sort of Top Gear-esque show, please go and check out Freddy's channel, uh, Tavares, on YouTube and watch all the series of Car Trek. The first one still remains my favourite. I don't want to say best. I just want to say my favourite. Agreed. Um, but I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with season eight because I think the cars they've got there are quite interesting. Uh, oh, and, and Ed managed to sell a wrecked and utterly broken TVR for a profit, which just proves to the mayor there is nothing that man cannot sell. <laughs> I have been watching the new series of Top Gear on BBC One and marvelling at their ability to recycle old Top Gear ideas. <laughs> now, I know that Chris hasn't been watching this because he hates Northerners, so I will cover this bit. <laughs> Sorry. It's not... It's To be fair, it's not... It's a player-hater, that's what it is. <laughs> it's a player-hater. Um, so this was a five-episode run of, on BBC One, and this was the first season since COVID started, I believe, that they were able to travel outside of the country and start doing some of the, the, the broader things that Top Gear was known for going to you know far-flung and exotic places and taking cars there um, so they did an RV road trip uh, which sounds a lot like a Grand Tour episode from a few years ago <laughs> they went back to Lillehammer for the third time for Top Gear <laughs> to turn a Sinclair C5 into a bobsled not quite okay. sure on that one but it was kind of there, there was a there was a feeling of deja vu through this series I thoroughly enjoyed all of it 
before I, you know, before we get into this, uh, I we've watched quite a lot of these with my son sitting down because he's now kind of old enough to stay up late enough to watch Top Gear on a Sunday night, and he's laughed like a drain because it's very silly. It's leaning quite hard on the entertainment side, almost more so than um, Clarkson and Hammond and May did, and it's it's more challenges and adventures and less about car reviews or any kind of. I don't know. I miss where more than one of the presenters would review a car. So one of my favourite things about old Top Gear episodes is seeing, you know, Jeremy Clarkson might review something, but then also James May might review something slightly off the wall and and, and weird, or, or Richard Hammond will review something. Yeah. There's not that balance between this set of presenters. If it's a supercar, unless it's a Ferrari, in which case they may let Paddy McGuinness go because he, he does like Ferraris and has owned a few, it's always Chris Harris driving it. If it's a competition car, it's definitely Chris Harris driving it. And and there's and these episodes are now like two VT pieces. The big one, which is an adventure with the three of them doing something somewhere, and one other bit. And there's nothing else. There's no news, there's no guest. And it feels a little bit lacking in that respect. It feels they're less tight, they're more flabby because they haven't got that that variety in the show that the the original Top Gear established. And that, to be fair, the Grand Tour did take on and and kind of run with a bit with their conversation street bits and their their road car reviews as well as the adventure stuff. This feels very much like they've kind of gone for BBC One now. We're going to do a a giant entertaining piece with the three of them doing something adventurous in cars, and we'll let Chris Harris drive a rally car every now and then. Mm. and nothing wrong with that and like I say everyone I know that has children of a certain age 9 to 15 let's say (laughs) and especially if they're boys they watch this and they laugh like drains because it is very entertaining and it's funny when you know they they mock one another and and it's still an entertaining show it's not quite the top gear uh, that I know and love the kind of peak top gear but that doesn't mean I'm not going to watch, even though sometimes I cannot tell what Paddy McGuinness is saying. <laughs> it, and they, they do seem to be recycling a few ideas. There was a really wonderful episode, actually, the last episode of the show, where they celebrated 100 years of the BBC by going out and doing some uh, trialling in a vintage car that was worth like a quarter of a million quid or something. And there's the three of them failing to double D clutch <laughs> in it. And, and the two, one driving while the other two bounce up and down the back yeah, so they yeah. can try and drive it up muddy slopes. I thought that was the whole of that show was fantastically entertaining and they did a big piece on sustainable fuels mm. which was more like the kind of thing you would have remembered from the Andy Wilman Clarkson Howard and May kind of era of Top Gear but that was the exception in a series that otherwise kind of just clove more to the one VT piece of Harris doing something in a car and then the three of them going and having adventures nothing wrong with it and it's still entertaining television it's still beautifully made but it's not quite at the peak of Top Gear that I really enjoyed or even at the peak of the films that um, LeBlanc and Harris made in the sort of second iteration of Top Gear post Clarkson and Hammond and May still I think there's some stuff worth watching that episode 5 with they do this, the, the 100 years of the BBC that is definitely worth seeking out and watching if you haven't watched it um, I had a look at uh, with help of Ratings UK on Twitter I had a look at some of the Top Gear ratings because now all of the uh, the ratings are all behind sort of paywalls and commercial services and things like that. It's, it's not as easy to see as it used to be. What is really telling with Top Gear is that given that they are on BBC One in a prime time slot, if you sort of 
uh, I think last weekend, uh, or maybe, the, sorry, whichever weekend it was, I think, you know, Wimbledon starts interrupting it and, and there's a few other things that sort of start interrupting it over the summer. It's always up in the top 10, 20 programmes on, on telly. You know, in a week, it's still pulling in big numbers. And it seems to be like the last numbers I could find was about 3 million overnight. So the kind of the live, quote unquote, broad um, people watching it. Then you've got all the catch up and the iPlayer adding about another million to that. So it's pulling in good numbers. It It's pulling in, I think, a very fair viewership for its time slot. I know that you and me have mused previously that we don't know how long Chris Harris will go on for. And I think it's notable that he started popping up more and more on Collecting Cars' YouTube channel. He started popping up doing collabs on other YouTube channels in his branded Collecting Cars t-shirt. So I don't think that Top Gear itself is in kind of fundamental danger of being cancelled because it's a flop. I do worry that Top Gear will lose Chris Harris as the expert and somebody like James Corden's going to come in and start presenting it and like oh, Jack Whitehall <laughs> and Paddy Mc- uh, Freddie Flintoff will be that will be the lineup and it's just going to turn into they think it's all over yeah not that they think it's all over is no, it no, no. Um, what the, what's the show they did on Sky with James Corden and oh, um, the awfulness or I don't I can't remember what it was called but I know the one you mean League of Their Own yeah, League of Their Own yes um, and to be fair I did watch a lot of that and some of it was very very funny and it, it it showed even back then how fearless Freddie Flintoff was and I suspect played a big role in him getting the Top Gear job yeah but I hear what you're saying Harris does have a tendency to want to move on to not stay yeah. static. Yeah, I've wondered how long he's willing to accept the greater exposure that comes with being on primetime television on a Sunday night and whether or not there's going to come a point where he's going to be like, OK, I've, I've, I've made a pile of cash from this. I've, I've really enjoyed doing it, but I want to go back to either my roots or I want to go but do something completely different yeah. that is not as much in the, in, the, in the limelight. He doesn't strike me as somebody who's going to do a 15-year stint (laughs) at the helm of of Top Gear. And you're right, who do they replace him with? Uh, There isn't a huge shortlist of people you would say immediately spring to mind. Jethro Bovingdon would have been a fantastic replacement, but Top Gear USA have snapped him up. And uh, I was overjoyed to get access to all of season one of Top Gear USA and go and revisit some of those episodes. Fantastic stuff. If you have Motor Trend on demand in the US, then season two is airing now. Uh, I don't know when we're going to get this on Discovery+. Plus. Hopefully soon, because I think that Rob Cordry, Dax Shepard and Jethro have a really cool chemistry and they're doing great stuff with a way reduced budget. <laughs> um, so I could totally see, you know, Jethro stepping into to Chris Harris's shoes, how well the chemistry would go between him and the um, the sort of northern axis of Freddie Flintoff and Paddy McGuinness. I don't know. The sort of the, the ribbing of Harris and, and so on between them, that is what's keeping the show going, is that sort of genuine fun and banter that, uh, I hate that word, but you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah. The, the kind of, the interaction between them is genuine and that's what's, uh, I think, 
possibly holding the interest of everybody. Maybe it's to holding the interest of Harris. I, I don't know. I Whatever he continues to do, I'm going to be there watching it or reading it regardless. But you're right. I wonder how long he'll carry on wanting to do this and whether or not the Beeb will reinvent the show again or if they'll just plug in somebody else. Anyway, we've talked for 45 minutes without mentioning the films we're reviewing for this this uh, this show. So shall I do a little bit of intro to two films that we're going to talk about as part of a, a series of episodes we're going to go through the Mission Impossible movies. We've mentioned in the past that we really should do Mission Impossible movies. As we've gone back and watched these two films, what it turns out that we mean is we really need to do the latter day Mission Impossible <laughs> movies. So... The first Mission Impossible movie we're going to skip over because that has barely any car content in it apart from a fire truck driving around around the CIA headquarters. We're going to start with Mission Impossible 2 and move on to Mission Impossible 3. Uh, just to set the scene for where the series would go. So in the next episode of the podcast, we're going to cover some of the more recent um, Mission Impossible movies that have some of the slightly more outrageous car chases and car stunts. But I didn't want to kind of jump in straight at like the fourth movie in the franchise or anything, but it was worth going back to Mission Impossible 2 because at the time it was the only one that Chris had seen, which is disgraceful. <laughs> uh, but as we have established, this is a man who hadn't seen Top Gun before he went and saw the sequel, like a savage. And still hasn't. And still hasn't. Um, been- so we're going to start with Mission Impossible 2 uh, and then go into Mission Impossible 3, which is kind of the reboot, reinvigoration of the franchise. Mission Impossible 2 is not good. <laughs> I think it's fair to say it's not a great movie, but it was a raging success. This was made in 2000 and it was John Woo doing, I think, maybe his second Hollywood movie after coming over um, from doing a lot of successful movies elsewhere. And he basically went full John Woo and then some. It's almost him being a parody of himself, taking all of the slow-mo and the doves and the the warring um, opposite ends of the spectrum, heroes and and bad guys, and and just overdoing it. Why don't you recap the the plot and what's actually happening. <laughs> oh, uh, it won't take I, long. Do I have to? <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, the plot of Mission Impossible 2 is impossible to recap. No, but basically, not. let's, let's, let, yes, it is. It's 100% impossible. So, Mission <laughs> Impossible 2 this tells mission, the story. This isn't Mission Difficult, Mr. Hunt. This is Mission Impossible. <laughs> um, The story of Mission Impossible 2 picks up with our IMF agent Ethan Hunt, played by Tom Cruise, off having a vacation by hanging off some rocks. And this marks the start of Tom Cruise doing his own stunts and doing increasingly larger and more visually impressive and increasingly dangerous stunts for the Mission Impossible films. And... It opens with a famous sequence of him climbing some rocks. Sorry, climbing fans, I don't know where they are. Somewhere in the Grand Canyon, maybe, not sure. Um, and then receiving a briefing via a pair of very flash Oakleys that he needs to go and find a thief, uh, played by Tandaway Newton, and recruit her to help with an operation. And he does this by means of outing her to the person she's thieving from and then offering her a deal of, hey, you know what, come and do this and we'll we'll forgive all of your thieving charges and you can come and do this job for us. And, and the movie then continues on to 
them basically saying, so your ex-boyfriend who used to be an IMF agent but is now a super bad guy has stolen this super killer drug that is not at all like COVID, except it really is like COVID. <laughs> it is. They've created this drug that just kills people really, really, really badly and gives them sort of the sweats and cold and breathing problems and then they die. Um, and they've also created a cure and you need to go and get the drug and bring it back. And also there's this cure. And the whole plot is just ridiculous and goes on like this. Basically, they're recruiting this they're recruiting this woman because she used to date the bad guy and she needs to go back and ingratiate herself with the bad guy so that they can infiltrate his network and steal back this designer drug blah 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 (laughs) the thing about this movie is it basically tried to rework mission impossible which the first one was a kind of tight thriller that amazing sequence where tom cruise is hanging on a cable in a room where he can't touch the floor that everyone's remembered has been parodied a million times, but it's still a really amazing sequence. This film basically tried to make Ethan Hunt into James Bond, but American. Uh, He's not really the Ethan Hunt that we come to know through the rest of the series or from the first movie. He's basically just a bland, anonymous guy with floppy hair and no personality who karate kicks and um, Muay Thais and Krav Magars his way through a bunch of anonymous goons in slow-mo from several angles. Um, The real reason I wanted to kind of bring this one up is because it has two interesting car chase sequences. The first of which is when he first meets um, Nia Nordoff Hall, the thief, played by Tandy Newton, and she basically escapes uh, in a car... Uh, on, a, on a mountaintop, she escapes in an Audi TT. TT. Uh, and then she thinks she's got away with it. And then Cruz appears in a Porsche 911. Um, it's a 996 Cabrio, yeah. which is an interesting choice um, for, a, for a chase. Uh, m- more to the point, it's a Tiptronic, which <laughs> it's just got the steering wheel buttons of fail on it. It's not even got paddles. It's so old, it's just got a little button. And there's even a cutaway shot of Cruz like poking the button to get it to down change. <laughs> It's not impressive, but the car chase is kind of fun because John Woo shoots it like a dance. Mm. The cars are kind of spinning and moving around one another and it's very dynamic and the camera is never still, but it's not like Michael Bay, I can't tell my eyeballs hurt. <laughs> it's actually it's actually really nicely staged and there's a couple of moments, I can remember when I watched this in the cinema, where there's a moment where the, the two cars are pirouetting side by side that I remember going really how did they end up like that but there's a lot of moments in it that are really fluidly staged and for a a sort of car chase as character work it works really really well it's well staged it's kind of nice to remind ourselves that when the Audi TT came out it looked amazing it looked so futuristic can the the I love 996 Porsches I really do I've owned two Porsches from that generation of cars but it looks the Porsche looks so frumpy next to the Audi, which look, is in silver naturally, and looks just chiselled and and amazingly futuristic in a way that in a decade later the Audi R8 would come along and do the same thing for Tony Stark, and it's a brilliant bit of product placement by Audi, and I'm sure they sold a shit ton of TTs <laughs> in America off the back of it. I'm not sure how many 911 Cabrio Tiptronics Porsche sold. Probably quite a few because, you know, fat old men like them. But it's not a great one for the petrol heads. And, but it is a really enjoyable car chase. And a and lot then of Oakleys. In the middle of the movie, and a lot of Oakleys. In the middle of the movie, there's a whole bunch of absolute tosh about Bellerophon and Chimera, which are the, 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 wait a minute, Bellerophon's the bad virus that the bad guys got and 
or is it the other way around? Other way I can't around. remember. See, the plot is meaningless rubbish. I think, I think both, so, both of them were also TVR models. Bellerophon was not a TVR model, it although it probably been. should have been. <laughs> yes. Um, the Chimera was, you're correct. Uh, <laughs> but yes, there's a whole bunch of stuff in the middle. There are some very generically staged action sequences with that kind of aforementioned slow-mo from three different angles, which seems to be a, a sort of... It's an affectation of, I guess, that era of... Asian action cinema where you would see a particular move done once and then they would basically take you back in time where you watch it from a different angle and that always freaked me out like the really good editing makes it feel like you're always going forwards whereas kind of cutting to a shot of Tom Cruise doing some leg kick maneuver on someone from three different angles just makes the whole moment drag on it's like that famous um clip of taken three Liam Neeson showing uh, it's it's 17 cuts of Liam Neeson climbing over a fence in taken three And it is just a ludicrous amount of cuts, whereas, you know, at least this is fewer, but it still drags. So there's a bunch of action stuff there. And then at the very end of the movie, there is a huge motorcycle chase mm. um, that, that kind of, again, it pits the, the, the good guy and the bad guy on separate motorcycles. Both of them, of course, are brilliant motorcycle riders who can ride without a helmet, without killing themselves, <laughs> and can perform stoppies and wheelies at, at, you know, at random and have perfect control over road bikes on non-road surfaces. Uh, without noticing that their tires change. <laughs> that, yes. In one particular egregious bit of, there's a cut. It's not on screen for very long, but it's really obvious that one of the road bikes has suddenly grown a set of massive <laughs> trialy knobblies. <laughs> and there's a couple of moments which just don't land. But as a bike chase goes, at the time, I felt this was really really well shot it's really visceral they do a lot of interesting things with the bike conceit cruise hops off the side of the bike and kind of skates along on his feet at one point um it that is fantastic stuff and again it's filmed really interestingly they 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 make a, a point because they're not wearing helmets of showing that as much as possible they had tom cruise riding the bike yeah i don't know so much about the bad guy who is played by doug ray scott it's really weird to watch this movie and think that that guy would have been Wolverine had things worked out differently. <laughs> he actually had a motorcycle accident on the set of Mission Impossible 2 that meant he couldn't play Wolverine and they went and hired some sing and dance guy off of the Broadway stage. <laughs> Whatever happened to him? Whatever happened to him. But yes, it's it's wild to think that Doug Ray Scott could have been Wolverine because I, I like Doug Ray Scott rather a lot in other things, but he is unbelievably bad in this movie. But don't let that stop you from digging this out um, on a VHS that you might have lying around or an old an old DVD uh, and watching watching the opening car chase, which is absolutely brilliant. And this end end piece is a huge bit of action nonsense, but it's really really enjoyable. Um, what did you think of MI two going going and revisiting it? How what did you think other than like the the everyone's wearing all the Oakleys all the time? <laughs> Not nearly enough limp biscuit in the actual film. That's the right amount. <laughs> so you're absolutely right. The The plot of it, I, I watched this at the cinema and this was 2000, so it was like over 20 years ago, which makes you feel old. You would have been in, let's see, an animal T-shirt and really baggy jeans with a chain wallet. <laughs> Two thirds of that is actually probably about right. The thing that struck me about it was putting, well, a few things. One, the action sequence... I thought had been parodied in Charlie's Angels 
and actually done better in Charlie's Angels because this was peak, like Crouching Tiger, Matrix time when everybody was doing bullet time and big wire work and stuff. Um, also, they've clearly got the the face reveal mask thing because they just keep doing it over and over again because that's their special effect. Talking about the two action sequences, the car chase and the motorbikes in particular, I'll come back to the motorbikes. The thing with both of those was that it really struck me how much it focused on the actors. And it's really, really easy if you watch car films and particularly if you watch Need for Speed, it's almost like Tron, you know, the, once the driver's enclosed, they just become nothing. They just become part of the object and the object is the thing that's doing, doing the work. Whereas particularly in that in that car chase, you always had that sense of particularly Ethan Hunt looking for the, for the next thing. Where's it going to go? Where's you know? How's everybody spinning? What are they doing and thinking in that moment? It's the best thing in the movie. That that chase is the best thing in the movie, and it's one of my favourite car chases. It was one of the reasons why I said we should start this thing with Mission Impossible Two because mm. I think it's it's a fantastic thing to see car chases character development and car chase as. Uh, something other than a bloke looking grimly behind the wheel as he tries <laughs> to catch somebody else. It's it's just different in that way. Mm. And it is shot so so differently for the time and with the sort of flowing shots and the spinning camera work, it really marked itself out as something... Yeah, I've used the word different a lot, so I'm looking for something different to say. <laughs> but the thing that really got me with Two Mission, Two Impossible is that the the bike chase... It almost looked like Tom Cruise was doing his own stunts. And not only was he actually riding the bike, he was acting while riding the bike. Whereas Doug Ray Scott, a lot of his stuff actually looked like he was on a trailer and yeah. was kind of waving a gun about. And the bit Yeah, that- it's it's shot it's it's shot from the handlebars upwards. Yes. Yes. But the thing that when I saw it, I remember just at the time going, what was when they did the kind of the stoppy turn and he's like re- like firing the gun and tracking the guy as the bike's spinning yes. around on the front wheel and you're just like, somebody... <laughs> no! <laughs> somebody has thought of the choreography of that. And, I mean... It happens a bit in three as well. Someone but. has watched one of those. Yeah, someone has watched one of those motorcyclists who can do those amazing sort of tricks where they spin the bike around mm. on the back wheel while they hang off the handlebars and so on. Or you know, seeing the yeah. kind of stoppies that can be pulled on one of those bikes, and they've gone, "What could you do with that?" It, it is ridiculous. The kind of the idea. There's an awful lot of spinning around and shooting. There's a whole moments in the middle of the movie where there are no cars, and therefore we weren't that interested. But there's moments where Cruz <laughs> just randomly jumps upside down and fires his guns upside down for no apparent reason other than it looks cool it's 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 full of action cliches but you're right they do take something they do interesting things with the bikes that isn't just bikes go really fast but also i think again it's allowing the actors to act while they're in the middle of doing this action stuff whether they're they're riding or whether it's a a trailer shot or whatever it might be and it kind of made me think about what we were talking about in the last episode with top gun maverick and particularly thinking ahead to whatever this F1 film of Brad Pitt's might be, which is, you know, the it's the classic Top Gun thing. You know that the hero pilots, they've often got their mask hanging off so you can see their face and you can see their eyes, but all of the baddies have got, like, the visor down and they've got the mask on and they're just anonymous. Yeah. If you did that Mission Impossible bike chase and they were wearing full-face helmets, 
it wouldn't be nearly as interesting because you miss that human element. And the human bit was what they did really, really well. Even to the point of um, when... Let me get this right around. When Ethan Hunt goes off for Tandy Newton's character and there's an urgency and a panic, which if he jumped in a car wouldn't have been so much you know if you couldn't see his face it wouldn't be so much and I, I honestly thought like if they can do that with bikes and this is like 20 odd years ago this has got nothing to do with the camera tech or anything like that it's purely about the performance and having the actor able to do the thing on the bike that they're filming and they were clearly going look we've got tom cruise on a bike with his, with his you know late 90s floppy hair we're going to get a nice helicopter tracking shot of that that holds up incredibly well for me. And I wonder what they're going to do with the F1 film to stop it being anonymous cars going around the track. It's a tricky one to do. They're in, in future missions, which we'll come to uh, in, in the next few episodes, they do have helmet clear visor. So you can see mm. eyes, particularly um, because female characters maybe have very distinctive eyes and so on. But yeah, you're right. The reason that you kind of yeah keep the helmet off or keep the mask off in the case of, of Top Gun is because you need to see that you've got your actor there. You want to see the actor doing doing the thing. And Tom Cruise has become incredibly famous as part of the Mission movies for mm. doing his own stunts. Let's let's leave Mission Impossible two there and briefly move on to Mission Impossible three. This does not have any anything like the sort of standout car chase sequences of two. But as a film, oh. it is infinitely better because it is basically an episode of one of my favourite TV shows of the 90s and early 2000s Alias, which was a spy TV show made by a guy called J.J. Abrams, you may have heard of him uh, starring Jennifer Garner and a number of other actors who crop up occasionally in these movies and it was a a sort of weekly TV drama that posed the question what if a spy had a personal life as well and it dug into that. And this is basically that. It takes Ethan Hunt and basically strips him of all of that kind of Hollywood Bond, you know, American Bond flash and, and positions himself as someone who used to be um, on the front end of the IMF force who'd go out and do jobs and has since decided that he wants to retire from that kind of thing and teach. Uh, he's got a fiance, he's going to get married and he's kind of pulled back into the active spy life by the series' best bad guy played by the late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh God, yes. I have to say, actually, I watched these two on on successive nights and there were two things that struck me. One, they are completely different films. It's, yeah, it's I mean, not even close. This was a franchise reboot. This is this is one of the most successful franchise reboots I think I've ever seen. Oh, this God. was Paramount who who produced these films along with Cruz's regular producing partner Paula Wagner. This was them basically seeing J.J. Abrams' uh, success with the Alias spy TV show and the very beginning of Lost and, and going, well, he'd be a fantastic guy to, to direct this movie. So this was his first film gig mm. and it is basically just a, an hour and a half worth of an Alias TV episode but with a big $150 million <laughs> budget and Tom Cruise sort of stripped back from the, the excess and actually giving 
real emotion because there's a great bad guy who does brilliant bad guy stuff and and makes you genuinely fear for the life of the characters in the film there are proper stakes here and there's one standout sequence i don't want to explain the whole plot of mission impossible 3 because again these are quite convoluted films with convoluted plots and if i get it wrong i'll feel stupid (laughs) um but there's a bad guy and he wants a thing which in this case is called a rabbit's foot they're always called something silly (laughs) the MacGuffin. he gets caught mid-movie although clearly it seems deliberate and the good guys are transporting him to presumably go and lock him up and throw the key away and they are transporting him in a big armoured van and they're going across one of those amazing never-ending bridges that they have in America I would love to tell you which bridge it is I meant to look that up I didn't sue me for not doing my research and there is this fantastic sequence of vehicular mayhem where the bridge is attacked by a Reaper drone and a helicopter full of goons and cars are exploding everywhere and people are trying to get into the van and Cruz is trying to get super shooty guns and and there's all sorts of stuff, but it's so visceral and it's not a car chase, but it's car-based action in a way that the franchise would go on to do in increasingly huge, spectacular action sequences and this feels like the start of it where they went what can we do we'll put tom cruise in the middle of basically a bridge being blown up and we'll yank him into the side of a car and have it smash and put him through the ringer and this was the first movie where they went we're going to take this character of ethan hunt and we are going to absolutely rinse him through the ringer and make him you know the the punching bag and and make him do increasingly crazy things to achieve the mission And it's such a taut, propulsive thriller that I I, every time I watch this, I think, God, thank God for this. This was the of the whole mission series. And there have been six films with another two to come. This film made the least amount of money. Mission Impossible 2, made in 2000, made nearly six hundred million dollars in 2000. That's a gigantic amount of money. It made the most money that year for a film. But bear in mind, though. I remember, because I'm old, like Mission Impossible 2 was everywhere. Like there, It there was were, huge. There were skits on the MTV Movie Award, one of which is on the DVD and is not nearly as good as I remember. But there was, you know, Limp Biscuit were in the charts. I think Metallica were in the charts. You, yes. you couldn't move for references to Mission Impossible. And then it kind of, and then it died out the back. One thing I will say, I, I, I kept looking for kind of, links with other films because I think my brain kind of goes like oh was that inspired by was that inspired by both of these films so both Mission Impossible 2 and 3 had elements of no time to die in them the one of obviously you got one one is the virus one is the despite being made 15 years before no time to die no time to die very much but it's just a sort of a weird coincidence but I did look at um Philip Seymour Hoffman in Mission Impossible 3 it's not a you know, finally you join us, Mr. Bond, you know, stroking the white cat or anything like that. It, it, you know, this is somebody who is just, is so cold. Yeah. Yeah, he's, and he looks down on on Ethan Hunt. He doesn't consider him an equal in any way. There's none of that from Mission Impossible 2 where they're like, oh, we're two sides of the, the coin and, and and so on. There's none of that. He's, he's a proper bad guy and mm. he's fantastic in this. But this is also where they reveal how they make the masks. In Mission Impossible 3, they finally reveal how those masks are put together, which I love. And you're like, no, I don't want to know behind the magic. And I'm like, no, it's awesome. Shut your face. (laughs) It wasn't wasn't the idea of... of... So here's the thing with that that mask scene. 
I like the idea. And Mission Impossible is one of those things where I think you have to absolutely take it with not even a pinch of salt. You have to think that this is almost comic book. You know, if you think that Bourne, the Bourne series is kind of the most earthy and realistic, Mission Impossible is kind of the elaborate thriller where, you know, it's that classic thing where it's like, oh no, there's a password. Tap, 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 tap. We're in. It's yes, and- with a brilliantly hacky interface. Oh, yeah, I absolutely <laughs> get that. It's it, it it's it's hyper real. Oh. Um, it's not like you say. It's not grounded in any way. But I love because the masks are such a staple of Mission mm. Impossible from the TV show, the first two films, and it's it's a joy to just have that shown. And without spoiling the the movies to come, they do take that concept of the machine that goes out in the field and can render you a mask on the fly. Yes and they do run with it in future movies so we'll we'll come to that later but Mission Impossible 3 does not contain a great deal of vehicular mayhem it does contain a wonderful bright orange Lamborghini (sighs) Gallardo the original one completely unadorned no silly wings no pointy (laughs) front it looks amazing the the original one looks the best I'm sorry it just does and it gets blown to smithereens. Spoiler alert. Uh, they don't do a huge car chase in it, which they absolutely should have done, but it's it's so cool. And there's a whole bunch of other cars. I just did go and do some research on the Internet Movie Cars database <laughs> to find out that there are something like 40 cars in here, including such joys as a say at Marbella, a Toyota Corolla. <laughs> I, think that, I think that is a uh, 2005 Toyota a, Camry. It's our first mention of a yes. say at Marbella. <laughs> One of the one of the trucks that gets smashed to bits on that aforementioned bridge is a Lincoln Navigator, and there is a joyous Land Rover Discovery Three. <laughs> here, here ends your serious oh God, research into the platform. There's two of them. Yes, it, yes, but it, really, the, the what we wanted to do is in going over these two movies was to go. A, if you haven't watched the Mission Impossible series, go back and watch them. Watch Mission Impossible One and kind of just enjoy the action moviness. Um, and sort of intermingled with a tense thriller, loads of Dutch angles. It's a really, really fun take on the TV series. And then two is just dumb fun. Feel free to watch the car chase at the beginning, <laughs> fast forward through the middle, and then watch the amazing motorbike chase at the end. Yep. It doesn't matter that you've not seen all the middle stuff because you you already know who the bad guy is. And yeah, he's the one on the not red mo- He's the one on the red motorcycle who keeps yelling all the time. <laughs> and then watch all of Mission Impossible 3 because this is the reboot where they went, this is going to be a series that does not have shit tons of slow-mo um, from three different angles and it's not going to have floppy hair and it's not going to be James Bond. This is going to be tight gritty big action stunts but done as mm, verite as they can born had happened by this point so there was a a a degree of like not groundedness because that'd be ridiculous for for a movie (laughs) like this but sort of selling the weight of the action um and this it's beautifully shot and as we'll come to in the next couple of episodes the mission movies that go on from this are increasingly bonkers in their stunts uh there's more vehicular mayhem but that's for another time let's move on to what has henry catchball been up to this week i i I tweeted about this um because we're big fans of henry catchpole and he, he has a certain way with words in a certain manner he did a film about the lamborghini huracan sto called fantastic or fraud where he has a construct where he argues with himself which i think 
was just that kind of brilliant little twist that kind of pulled me out of that sort of YouTube cliche. And I was like, okay, this is good. This is good. Although um, since our last episode, he's also done a review of the Morgan Super 3, which is him just being very him in a very him car, but with some lovely writerly touches, which does Henry still write anything anymore? Or is he now just... He writes for Evo. He does He, he does. does stuff for Evo every now and then, I, yeah. I, he does a, a column at the back of Evo magazine. Is Evo does. one of these magazines that you don't read anymore? Have you have you outgrown your Evo? No, no, no. no. I, 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 I'm still a subscriber. It still comes in its white paper envelope. Um, I, I, I admit, I don't often look at the bylines and I've forgotten about his column in the back. But yes, also, um, speaking of old Drive Tribe videos, if you're going to watch something with Henry Catchpole in and Jethro Bovingdon, they did a video for Drive Tribe at the now sadly defunct Rockingham circuit with the two of them in a, a McLaren P1 GTR and a Aston Martin Vulcan, which is well worth a watch. Anyway, let's go on to our YouTube picks because time is ever moving forward. Yeah, we've waffled for a long time. So what have you what have you picked for your video and your channel? My video is Misha Churudin. He has been absolutely going gangbusters at his YouTube channel recently. Yeah, I would say that. He he quite recently kind of hired a cinematographer, bought a bunch of kit, and the, the quality's taken a big step up. He's chucking out videos on a daily basis it's that are fantastic crazy. quality. If you're interested in the, the the car scene around the Nürburgring and watching onboards in various different cars, it's it, you can't get better than this stuff. It's it's really good. It's, it's amazing. And they did a documentary at the Nürburgring for the 24 hours, and... It was. It reminded me a lot. So it's it's less than half an hour, but it's kind of. You remember the stereo screen? Um, yeah, we mentioned that a few episodes did, back. Which was the, only like five was it twenty one hundred frames That's or whatever it's one. called. It's very much made up of B roll. It's very much an observing of what's going on rather than you know the the arm outstretched vlogger or or Misha as presenter. But it is absolutely soaking in atmosphere it puts you there it's it's the next best thing you can get to being there and both of us have been there on a number of occasions yeah and have been fortunate enough to have press passes and have been in the pits and out on the the side of the track and we wouldn't have been able to do that these days because we were quite frankly chancers (laughs) (laughs) and now you have to pass a whole bunch of extra checks and and so on in order to get these this kind of access but it puts you right there in a way that I haven't seen for a while. No. And also... Maybe the one that reminds me of... reminds me a lot of the video that Will Buxton did at last year's Le Mans. Oh, that's a good shout. Not necessarily quite, but it's it's that same vibe of placing you in a specific place and trying to capture the, the atmosphere of the event. This feels a lot like that. But also, it's not just following a car, following a, the race, following a driver, and it's all pits and slow-mo shots sort of through Brunchen and things like that. What I really liked about this was that it put you in the middle of the car parade in Adenau, which I don't think is something that we, either of us have ever seen or attended. It took you into the state, the um, spectator areas. It really gave you a flavour of the event. And I think if you ever went to the Nürburgring 24-hour and you sat in a nice hospitality box and you drank nice beer and had free food and you know went down to look to the garage you would miss 80 percent of what's going on yeah more more i you know we've like i said we've been uh, quite a few times and 
some of my favourite memories of of hanging out with fellow petrol heads and friends are of driving to the Nürburgring 24 uh, and getting massive sunburn <laughs> because I didn't put a hat on. And then, you know, going around the forests at night and seeing all the crazy, crazy bit burgered up Germans <laughs> and their, their contraptions and fires and so on and buying a currywurst and yep. in the middle of the forests and, and watching the craziness. It felt, I mean, it, then it felt a teeny bit like the best kept secret in the world. Mm. Um, and we were there on the back of Dickie Meaden's absolutely seminal piece on racing the Maserati yes. there, that he wrote for Evo magazine, that if you have not read that, get on eBay and buy the best of Evo mag book, because not only does it have a whole ton of the best content from the sort of earlier days of Evo, but it has that piece that Dickie Meaden wrote about racing a Maserati in the Nürburgring 24 hours, which in, in word form captures the vibe of the event better than any video, I think, almost. It, it puts you there. Mm. And these videos uh, give you that same vibe of what it's like to go to this event. And you know, lots of my friends have said, if, you know, if we were going to go to a 24-hour race, where would you go? And I really want to do Le Mans. Yes. I want to go to Le Mans next year because, you know, you've got Ferraris back there and so on and so on. But if you could only ever do one more 24-hour race, it would be the Nürburgring 24 for me. Misha's film is absolutely brilliant. I apologise to the cinematographer whose name has completely escaped me and I can picture his face and I'm, I, I apologise immensely, but it is really, really worth watching. If you've gone, if you want to go, if you have any interest in the Nürburgring, it's well worth a watch. My channel is one that's actually been around for a very, very long time, just picked up recently, which is Brad Philpott, who is a racing driver. Uh, he is a driver coach he raced at the rock uh, race of champions very successfully more recently he's become known for going on the missed apex podcast with the which has the brilliant slogan we may not be the best but we're first um doing sort of race analysis and what he started doing he's really good on that that's where i know him from he started doing um some q and a's after races and he started doing just little, not even documentaries, but little pieces about things that are happening in F1 where his time as a driver and his experience mean he's got a view or an insight or he understands and can really communicate what's going on with that thing. They're not very long videos, but he is really articulate and he can really explain things well. Some of the questions that people ask, I think, give him some interesting angles to to talk through. And he's he's well worth a watch because, to be quite frank, he's one of those people that when he starts talking, he talks sense and he can talk it well and he's worth a listen. What's your video? And I'm interested because I've had this recommended to me a lot and I haven't watched it. Uh, yeah, I had this recommended to me by The Algorithm uh, only a couple of days ago, actually, and I watched it and it is fascinating. So this is a video that's titled somewhat clickbaity and it's worked because it's got a lot of views on it the most infamous Porsche 911 ever made is it more infamous than Steve McQueen's 911 I would argue that's famous rather than infamous okay okay two different words this is a discussion and sort of a history lesson in the famous midnight club from early 90s fame or late late 80s and early 90s fame in Japan Everyone who has even a passing interest in the Japanese car culture scene will have heard of the Midnight Club, sometimes with the midnight as one word, but it should actually be mid one word, night one word, because that's how the stickers show it on the cars that were part of the club. And 
it's talking about the the founder of the Midnight Club and his famous Porsche 930 Turbo, which is this concoction that they put together. It goes through a whole history of the, the the sort of street racing culture in Japan, how it started, how one club called the American Car Club started out with this uh, super tuned um, car that started to set records on uh, test tracks in Japan and would also go out at night and be driven at high speed for long periods of time on the... Um, the expressways in Japan. Mm. And then this led to people in that club kind of offshooting and one of them forming this midnight club where they would go out onto the Wangan Highway and max their cars. And to get into this club as a, like an apprentice, you had to have a car that was capable of 160 miles an hour. Wow. And you had to attend every Saturday night for a year every single meet in order to then be accepted into the club proper and gain the special little silver sticker that you stuck on your car bumper at a jaunty angle, never straight, always at an angle. And, and, this, um, is, and these, this is 160 mile an hour cars in the late 80s, early 90s. Late 80s, early 90s. So we're talking, there's a, there's an awful lot of tuned Nissans and then moving on to like GTRs and an awful lot of tuned air-cooled uh, Porsches at the time. That was the favoured the favored car. It's a wonderful video that tells a really interesting story. The guy who's narrating it has quite a flat effect to his voice, so it can sound kind of a, a little dry, but don't let that put you off. The information and the research that's gone into this this video is is huge. There's loads of great screenshots and, and photos from um, you know famous magazines in Japan like Option and, and shots of early tuning shops in in Japan who worked on these Porsches in particular. You know, they had very special bumpers designed that had giant fog lights to help light up the road when you're doing 160 plus at wow. night and huge ducts to feed air to the brakes so that you had the ability to slow <laughs> down. One of the key things with the Midnight Club was apparently that they had very strict rules about trying to do this as safely as possible which sounds ridiculous when you're doing <laughs> these speeds illegally on the public highway but they were very keen to try and mitigate risk and not put people's lives at risk um it's a really really good video i'm not sure if the porsche is the most infamous 911 ever but it is probably one of the more famous ones particularly in japan mm. it inspired manga um comics it inspired manga anime it's it's a very important car in Japanese car culture, and you can see its influence on the RWB cars that came out um, and are still being made now. You can see its influence on the way resto mods might take an approach to retrofitting the best of Porsche's um, racing parts and back catalogue parts to a particular air-cooled car. Uh, it's a really interesting story. I don't want to give any more away. Watch the video try and get past the slightly dry narration and just watch it for the content because it's fascinating. It's a really interesting history lesson about the Midnight Club and late 80s, early 90s Japanese streetcar and street racing culture. Awesome. Um, and I'm going to link his channel as well. This is a channel called Hunter's Moon, which is a sort of mix of um, car ownership sort of standard YouTubing really and he started doing these pieces which are more historical. So there's a really interesting... Um, video on the history of Tugay. There's obviously the aforementioned Porsche 911 and there's a great one about the story of Time Attack, uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> the story of Time Attack, uh, which also has a, a, a great sense of telling story that you might not know about. 
so please do check them out, particularly the video. Uh, the channel, um, pick and choose the stuff you want to watch. Maybe not everything is for you, but this is a really interesting video about a, a, a fascinating time in Japanese car culture that's had an outsized impact. I think even if you are not aware of the car, you will have heard of the Midnight Club. Mm. So with that, that brings us to the end of another episode of the Automovie Podcast. We would like to thank you all for listening and please tell your friends about the show. If if they aren't listening, please just spread the word. It's the way we can get a, a larger listening base and we can make the podcast bigger and better for everybody. Um, if you'd love to leave, if you'd like to leave us a review, that's fantastic. That does help us on all of the podcast platforms, but particularly um, Apple Podcasts. And uh, thank you all very much for listening. I think with that, we are off to go and dangle off the side of a mountain in the sunset, wearing Oakleys. 